One of the things that Beth and I have noticed as parents as our children get older is that there's a certain part of Christmas that becomes more stressful. And that is the gift buying task of Christmas for teenagers. Uh, it's for a lot of reasons. One is our tastes are apparently stupid and, um, and that doesn't help. But the second thing is that as they get older, they have a lot more control over things. Miriam is working, as I said last week, at a local restaurant. She's got her own budget. She's buying stuff. She's saving stuff. She orders stuff online. She returns stuff. Like, we don't even know. Uh, Hannah's babysitting. She's doing kind of all of the same kind of stuff. And so it's weird. And the last Christmas or two have been fairly stressful where you're walking around not really knowing what they have, not really knowing what they like really knowing that they probably have already got what they need. And so you're looking at it going, I don't know, would she like that shirt? Probably not, but I don't know what else to get her. So let's do that, right? And, and then they're like, thank you. And something goes in their closet and you never hear it or see it again. So last year it got to a point in the bathroom and I said, we have to do something different. This year at Christmas, we cannot have the same pattern. We need to change this. And so what we decided to do was to give the girls an experience rather than any stuff. Um, and what that meant was on Christmas morning, uh, they woke up and we had been planning this for months. Uh, they didn't know anything about it. Uh, they got to open presents from grandparents and open presents from their aunts and uncles. And then they opened our present and our primary present to them was just a letter, which they looked both confused and disappointed by. Uh, and they opened it up and, uh, and there was no check inside. So that was disappointing too. <clears throat> and we said tomorrow morning, we're waking up very early and we're getting on a plane and we're going to go to New York for five days. We've arranged a place to stay uh, that works for people in ministry that allows you to go. It, uh, we have a Broadway show that we're going to. We're going to go see the Rockettes. We're going to go eat at some really great restaurants. We went and walked with the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, the weather was fantastic and it was awesome. It was so much better than stressing about stuff uh, was to experience something together as a family. Now, on the last day that we were there, we uh, had a couple hours to, to kill before going back to the airport. And if any of you have traveled to New York and gone through either LaGuardia or JFK, you know that the last thing you want to do is get to the airport early and hang out there because they're not great. And so uh, we decided to spend a couple hours walking around Central Park just before we, we took an Uber back to to the airport. And we were walking around just sort of taking in. Again, it was a glorious day. Loved walking around Central Park. And we came upon this fountain. This fountain is called the Fountain of Bethesda. You may have seen it in Central Park. Uh, it is a gorgeous, huge uh, structure that is there. Some interesting uh, parts about the Fountain of Bethesda. The first is that in the original design of the park, this was the only major artwork or statue that was originally part of the design of Central Park. So it's been there from the very beginning. It was constructed and finished in 1873. It's been in the same location. The other interesting thing about the Fountain of Bethesda is that it was um, the first major artwork that the city of New York commissioned and, they, and the person who was given the commission was a woman. The woman who designed this statue and the angel on top, the angel of the waters is called, was named Emma Stevens. And she had, was a native New Yorker who had gone and studied uh, sculpture in uh, Italy and had come back and was living in New York. And she uh, created this beautiful piece of art that's there today. Now, the thing that you need to know, and the reason I'm showing you this, is that the fountain of Bethesda in New York is a depiction of a biblical location, of a biblical scene, the pool of Bethesda. 
And the pool of Bethesda in the Bible takes, uh, shows up in one place, in John chapter 5, is where we primarily know it. And that is the scripture passage we're reading today. So I want you to know a little bit about what this fountain symbolizes, because it symbolizes a pool in Jerusalem from a couple of thousand years ago. And if you don't understand why that pool of Bethesda is important, then the scripture doesn't make a lot of sense. John, who wrote this, assumes you know what the pool of Bethesda is and why it's significant. So I'm going to tell you. The pool of Bethesda was a natural spring pool uh, near the walls of uh, old Jerusalem. It was a spot where this pool was there and people would gather around it. And yet at times, this clear, calm pool would become disturbed by bubbles that would come up. And as John writes about here, the waters would be stirred up. And what was believed at the time was that when the waters of the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem were stirred up, that that was an angel coming down, the angel of the waters, as you see depicted here, coming down from heaven and touching the water. And that when the water was touched by the angel, the bubbles started to appear, the water would be stirred up, and there were divine powers that were then in the water. And the first individual who got in that needed healing of any kind might be healed. And so the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem became known as a place where people who were seeking healing would spend days, weeks, months, years, waiting for the waters to bubble up, and then seeking to be the first one to get in. It's kind of, when you think about it, a weird theology, isn't it? If you're the first one, you can get in. The rest of you don't, no, sorry. It's sort of like a Darwinian theology, the healing of the fittest, right? Because if, you can, if you're like the least impacted and can get there fast, then you have a chance of being healed. If you really, as, as, as described here, people who are paralyzed there, you're probably not gonna be the first one in. It's a, but it's important actually to think about that, what that tells people about God. And into that situation, Jesus comes, who preaches about a very different kingdom and a very different understanding of God, a kingdom of God where, as he talks about, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And so I want to read now from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, of what takes place at the pool of Bethesda so long ago. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew Bethzatha, or Bethesda as we've come to call it, which has five porticos. In these lay many ill, blind, lame, and paralyzed people. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The ill man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, stand up, take your mat and walk. At once the man was made well and he took up his mat and began to walk. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here today, that we would experience your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to leave this image on the screen throughout the rest of the sermon. Because I think it was for the people of Jerusalem, the pool of Bethesda was a place that was a place of hope where people needed healing. 
That's why it was the first major art piece put into Central Park. It was a symbol of hope for broken people, maybe in New York City, for hurting people, for confused people that came to see it as they saw the water stirred up in the fountain. And I just want to leave it up there today that you might look at as we talk about our own journey, hopefully towards healing and wholeness in the new year ahead. And that if you need a symbol of hope to see or if the sermon just gets really boring and you want something else to look at, let your eyes drift to that. And let the promise of what this artwork symbolizes wash over you again. Because no matter who you are, no matter what is going on in your life, I believe that one of the things happening in the new year is that God is stirring waters. That we might enter into something new. Now, as a reminder, today is the second week of a five-week series that we're starting the year with. And this uh, series that we're in is a series where we're looking at five different questions. One question a week uh, to guide us into the New York. Questions have a power to form us as learning information doesn't. We have to wrestle with questions. It can really shape us as people. Uh, and so we're looking at these questions. And these questions build on each other week after week. So before we look at the question for today from this passage, do you want to be made well? I wanted to remind us about the journey we were hopefully have taken over the last week from our first question. Now, the first question that we started with last week was the question that the first question God asks of humanity in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit they weren't supposed to and they're hiding in the garden from God because they're ashamed, and God asks the question, where are you? And I hope this week that that's been a question you've been thinking about. Because as people, that's actually a question that, like Adam and Eve, we hide from a lot of the time. Because it can be hard just to name where we are. That's part of why we love running to resolutions in the new year. I don't want to think about where I am. Let's talk about where I'm going to be. But you can't really change your life if you're not willing to sit in where you are, both individually, in your relationships, uh, as a company, as an organization, as a church. Until you name where you are and sit with that and see it clearly, you're not going to really move forward. So we said just this week, don't make resolutions. Just sit with the question, where are you? As 2023 begins, where are you spiritually? Not what you want, not what are you planning for, but where are you? Are you feeling alive in your faith? Are you feeling like it's, it's something that is a distant, hard thing to imagine? Do you not even know if you believe any of this stuff? Wherever you are, just name where you are. Where are you spiritually? Where are you relationally? Where is your marriage as this year starts? Where are your friendships as this year uh, uh, starts up? Where is your relationships for people in small group? Where is your relationship with your children or your parents? Where are you relationally as the new year begins? Where are you emotionally? Where are you physically? To just sit with the question. What we invited you to do this week was also not sit in that question just thinking about it by yourself. Oh, this is where I think I am. Because like Adam and Eve, we hide. The truth is sometimes hard for us to see. Sometimes we need other people to help us see what is real and clear and accurate. So we said, ask that question first off with God. What does it mean to have the kind of prayer life that's not a Santa Claus prayer list? I need this, kids need this, uh, neighbors need this, I'll wake up tomorrow and see what you do. But to actually understand that prayer is a way that God can speak to us, shape us, form us. I know people who have taken different prayer exercises this week, fasting, journaling, whatever else, to really say to the question, God, help me to see where my marriage is. Help me to see where my friendships are. Help me to see where I am spiritually. Where am I? And to listen and ask. 
The second way we've invited you to do that is to say, what does it mean to, to have people with whom you ask that question? Whether it's a small group or your spouse or a mentor or a Bible study, whatever it is, who can you look at that will love you enough to tell you the truth and say, here's where I think you are spiritually. Here's where I think you are relationally. Here's what I see going on in your life to help us to see that. And from the beginning, I want to just say to you all, if you are someone who has gone through last week and gone, I don't really know what those things mean. I don't know what it means to kind of sit and let God speak to me about where I am. I don't know what that kind of prayer looks like. I don't know what, that's okay. This is not something anyone's just kind of born doing. Well, Jesus was born doing it. But outside of Jesus, we have to learn this. And so if that's where you are, the name spiritually, that's where I am. And then let's start working on it. Let's talk to, talk to someone on staff. Talk to a Bible study leader. Talk to a mentor. Talk to someone in your small group. How do, because different people do that in different ways. Somebody journals. Somebody fasts. So other people are like, well, that's not what I do. It's okay. How do you hear from God? So important that you are spiritually alive in that. And you can learn that. Or as a culture of, of rising an epidemic of loneliness, more and more of us don't have anyone we can, we have people to go to a concert with, but we don't have someone that can, we can look at and say, help me to see where I am. Speak the truth in love in my life. And if you don't have that, that's okay. But we got to create some on-ramps and there are going to be on-ramps literally in the coming weeks for you to get involved and to try to find that kind of pocket of community here. But we ask you to say, where are you as 2023 begins? And to bring some reflections in from God and others. So what I want us to do today is to build on that. I hope that as you come in today, there's one thing that you're going, well, where I am is I'm really alive here. I'm really doing well here. I'm really excited here. I'm really grateful here. Everybody of us should have that as we go into the new year. But if we're honest, all of us also have places where we're like, this isn't quite how I want it to be. This is, I'm not spiritually alive. I don't feel like my real, I feel lonely in this stuff. And to name that, I want us today to talk about how we build on those things, how those things can be made well and how change can happen. Because to this individual who has been ill for 38 years, most translations say paralyzed, Jesus asked a question that on the surface seems so strange. And yet I warn you, it's incredibly challenging. Do you want to be made well? And that's what I want you to think about today in those places that might be hard or incomplete or confusing of where you're starting 2023. Do you want to be made well? There's two different things that I think are important that are in this question that we just need to have knowledge of, that the question brings out when it comes to being made well, to healing. And the first thing is this. We've got to be aware of by Jesus asking this question. Healing, being made well, is not a one-time event that only impacts one part of our life. It's not a one-time event that only impacts one part of our life. It is something that is an ongoing work, and it's something that has ripple effects to other parts of our lives. It's like a tapestry. If you pull on one thread, the other threads start moving in the tapestry. And so Jesus is saying, when this happens, if this happens, if you, after 38 years, can pick up your mat and start walking, it's going to change everything about your life. I mean, this person doesn't even have a name here. They've just become known as the person who for 38 years is ill, paralyzed, waiting at the pool. Imagine what changed. See, the problem when we see healing in other people or when we've experienced it 
is that we look at it and go, it's like when Jesus heals this person and he gets up and he's excited and he takes his mat and he walks and the movie credits come up and the music plays and it's just like Jesus is happy and the people are happy and the guy's happy and everything's just perfect in his life afterwards, right? No! No, the movie credits don't. You open one door and there's a hundred more doors there in front of you, right? Think about what this brother's like. Life is like a month later. Where after 38 years of people maybe helping him out in this way or providing for him in this stuff or assisting him, now they're like, oh, you can do it on your own now. You can pick up your mat and walk. We're not going to bring you groceries anymore. You got to go get a job. And he's like, well, what do I, I'm not trained for. What do I do for a job? I don't know, but you can get up and do it. Time for you to go do it. Well, like, I'm not trained for anything. I'm a little old to break into the workforce. Like, what is that, what is that gonna look like? Think about the relationships that he goes back to see that in his mind, he remembers people from 38 years ago. Imagine people that have passed on that he didn't know about. Imagine seeing his old high school girlfriend and now she's married to somebody else and has children and he has to realize what he's lost of what he thought his life was gonna be like. There's all kinds of things that Jesus is saying, if you want to be made well, it is going to impact over time and you're going to have to keep wanting it and the ripple effects are far reaching. It's going to change everything about your life. And that can be scary and that can be hard when pain is just a part of our story. Think about it this way in the Old Testament. When the people after 500 years crying out for freedom are freed and God brings them out of the rule of Pharaoh, they cross through the Red Sea, they go into the wilderness, and what's the first thing they start doing? Complaining and saying, let us go back to Egypt. That's important. Why? Because they've entered into a new reality that is wholly uncertain, that they have not any expectation for what it means. And there's a part of us when we enter into something new that's uncertain that goes, put me back where it was, because it might not have been fun, but at least I understood it. There was, a, there was a predictability to it. So when we talk about healing and what God wants to do in our life, we need to understand that when Jesus is saying to this man or saying to us, do you want to be made well? The ripple effects of that over time are going to be far-reaching. Do you want to be made well wherever you are today? The second part about it, and this is important as well, is that when we experience God working in our life, doing something new, healing, making us well, there's an inherent point Jesus is making that we have to be active participants in that. And this part is actually really hard to think about. Because there's a part of me that thinks that Jesus almost seems unfeeling here. Because when he asked this person, do you want to be made well, what's interesting is the person doesn't answer him. But what the person does and what we so often do with painful places in our lives, and again, I know this is hard, but just consider this, is he begins making excuses. Now, these excuses are really good excuses. But he never answers the question. And I think what Jesus is trying to do with him and with us is saying, in some kind of way, you need to be a part of choosing this. If it, all you can do is make the choice, that's still some agency that you have to be responding to a world being made new. Do you want it? Do you want to participate in that or not? Do you? Because if you think about this in a way, what, what, what's interesting is that we might start the new year and we've answered the question, where am I? 
Where am I? Spiritually, I'm not really alive. Okay, do you want to be made well? Of course I want to be made well. Of course I want to be spiritually alive. Great. There's ways you can learn to pray. There's, there's mentors you can learn to seek out. There's ways that you can learn. You can prioritize this in your day. I, I just kind of want to be like more spiritually alive. It's probably not going to happen. That's the reality of it. Nothing's going to change. Oh, no, 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 I, I want this kind of community. I'd love to have people that can speak the truth in my life and know how to pray for me, and I can do the same to them. I understand it's one of the great, okay, you want to get involved in small group ministry. I, I'm busy at work, okay. You know where you're going to be next year? Exact same place. No, I want God to heal. No, healing is something that we have to join God in that work. Oh, I want my marriage to be in a different place. I understand it started in 2003. Where am I? It's not exactly where I want to be. Okay, do you want to do the work of counseling? Do you want to do the work of, of praying together and learning to pray together as a couple and taking that journey together spiritually? That ah, makes me a little uncomfortable. Okay. Okay. Do you want to be made well? What you're really saying through your actions is like, not really. I'm just going to stay in Egypt. And you might be sitting there right now going, you have no idea the pain in my life. And I'm here to tell you, I don't. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or anything else. What I'm trying to do is say, these are questions Jesus asks that you and I need to be considering in our own life if things are really going to change. Healing's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing work with a lot of ripple effects to it. And that we've got to be willing to step in and to respond to what it is God wants to do. I recently heard a story from another pastor, um, and this is a story that I, I got permission to share with you. Uh, it was a, a gathering of, of pastors that we were at, and, and one of the things that we did was we just uh, invited all the ones who were there as a group of about nine of us to just sort of share one encouraging thing where we had seen the Lord work in our midst. Not do the pastor brag thing of like, well, I, we grew by 47% in our online ministry. Not that, because that bothers everybody. But where is a story where you can just say God was really working then as an encouragement? I saw the Lord making things well. We encouraged each other. And this one individual was talking about, he said, man, the, the most encouraging thing I saw, again, was we had a, a person on our staff come to us and resign. And I was like, huh. I mean, well, I'm going to leave that there. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's interesting. He said, you know, what happened was, is that this is somebody who had worked for years in our IT department, audiovisual, worked with technology uh, at our church. This is a hugely important thing. And uh, this person worked there for years, had been trained in it, had a degree in it, really gave selflessly, worked well with people. People on staff loved him. But what we didn't know was that this person had a gambling addiction. It had been there for years. And he had, as many addictions uh, uh, begin, it started out at a level that he could justify it. Started at a level where he could hide it, where he could lie about it to people in his family, uh, and that he could stay ahead of it. But after a time, it continued to grow, and to the point he couldn't hide it, because it was having ramifications for his family, uh, their finances, and uh, everything else, and the things that they could do. And so he did what um, a lot of us do in those times, like, okay, I'm going to make it's the New Year's resolution thing. I'm going to be different. This year's going to be different. I'm really going to change. This time, I really mean it. And he probably did in that moment, but some things are more broken than that. And the problem got worse and worse and worse until one day he comes in from work and his wife is there and his children are there and his best friend from college is there and his parents are there and members of his small group are there and that they had an intervention 
to say, this can no longer continue. In one way or another, and some of you have been a part of this, this has to change. The status quo can no longer continue. And he said that he was defensive and he was scared and he was angry and he felt betrayed. And yet he said also in that moment that he saw it, I could now look at it and say it was God, although at the time I wasn't there. There's something that shifted in me going, I want something new. Something inside of me started moving at that point. And so I agreed to go to the treatment center where they had said, this is where you need to go. And when I came out of the treatment center, I agreed to follow this program that had been set up with our counselor and with my wife as a part of it. I, I, um, I, I uh, took off uh, uh, the ability to go to a lot of sites on my phone. I agreed for my wife to know the password so that she could go on and check at any time. I agreed for her to do the finances uh, so that I couldn't hide money anymore, but that everything was, was uh, in, in her name and, and to be run by her. I, I turned all that over, but the hardest and scariest thing was I had to go quit my job without a plan of what else to do. And he said, because no one, he said he was the primary wage earner and he was the one that had benefits. But that the main place he had done the gambling was is while at work. Because it was there that he was by himself a lot of the time, and it was there that he had access to technology with no one around to watch. And he said, I knew I couldn't continue that and stay healthy. So he went into the pastor's office, a woman who oversaw that department, and said to her, I need to quit. And he was very honest. He said, here's why. And she started to help him out. She's like, well, what if we had someone work with you? What if we installed software that could monitor? You don't have to go to the city. He goes, I know how to get around the software. Now, I've, I've got I've to change. To be made well, I have to, I have to stop. And she said, would you hold here for a second? She left the room. It's gone for about 10, 15 minutes. And she walked back in, and she said, uh, I want you to think about something. In a different department, we have a job. That is, we've been looking for it for a while. We can't hire it for it. You're probably not the long-term fit for it. But what if we gave you six months to do that job so that you continue to have benefits and a salary knowing you're searching for something else? And it would give you some runway to figure out what comes next in your life. And he said yes. And four months later, he found the job that had nothing to do with tech or IT, nothing that he thought he was going to be living his life at. It was a salary reduction from what he had made before, but it was enough to live on, and it had benefits. And he left employment at the church. But he stayed involved there and is now starting and leading a Gamblers Anonymous group at the church. His life is completely different. And it's been hard, and it's been a struggle. But he is well from where he was when that intervention took place. Change can happen. No matter what it is that you have, that you are holding out in this year, saying, this is not where I want to be, when we ask the question, where are you? I want you to know today. I want you to hear today that you are not struggling with this alone that God sees you, that God loves you. God loves you and can change the very fabric of your life. But it is not going to be a one-time instantaneous thing and it is going to have to be something that you join God in that work. 
What would that mean for you? Do you want to be made well? Ask that question as we invited you last week. Not just to think about Ask it in prayer to God. God, what would it mean for me to start joining you in the work of healing, of being made well? God, what would it mean? I'm going to talk to people in my community. I'm going to talk to my spouse again. I'm going to what would it mean for me to start journeying toward wholeness and health? What would it mean to be made well? I'm going to get the input from other people. Because your life can change. God is stirring the waters still. Do you want to be made well? As we go into the new year, everybody wants to make resolutions. And I asked you not to last week. But just to sit with the idea of where are you. Now it's resolution time. But I don't want you to make six. I don't want you to make 12 that you do kind of well for three weeks and then it becomes overwhelming. But what I want to invite you to consider this week is one thing. I want you to assume that God is stirring the waters of your life in the place that is hard. What's one thing, one step that you could take this week to join God's work of healing and wholeness and being made well? Because if you are willing to take a step, God will meet you there. And you will be stepping into a whole new world. The question is, do you want to be made well? Lord, we do pray for your leading and your guiding this week to hear from you and others what this step might look like. And that our worlds would begin to change beyond anything we could ask or imagine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.